1: Prisoners at the Iman State Prison in Florence, Arizona, reported a water outage in the early morning on October 2nd. Hundreds of men were forced to share portable toilets and just a few gallon jugs of drinking water in several units at the prison, which houses more than 5,100 people. After the initial weekend outages, prisoners reported the water was being turned on intermittently for use, but appeared to be contaminated. Water that we are getting has a lot of sediment, such as dirt or something unknown in it, a man incarcerated Iman, said. We are sweating in our areas since we only have evap coolers. We are in a struggle to decide whether to use the water we do get for hygiene, food, or drinking, end quote. Several incarcerated people voiced their concern about maintaining their health and hygiene without access to running water. Quote, They tell us to go to meds and take them without water, one man wrote. We have overflowing johns without any type of sanitizer. All this on top of they still preach COVID protocols, but yet being unhygienic and not washing our hands and sharing the same john is okay, end quote. Another incarcerated man said that the department wasn't properly managing the dispersal of the water, so in some units, the prisoners who control the yards were hoarding it. On October 6, Department of Corrections spokesman Bill Lamoureux said the well that supplies the water to Ayman was undergoing repairs. But more than a week after the outages first began, incarcerated people and their families maintained the water problems are ongoing, and the department is not providing them with any new information. On October 10th, a man living in Iman said his unit had been without their evaporated coolers for eight days. Quote, our housing gets a minimum 10 to 15 degrees hotter than the outside temp, he wrote. Quote, additionally, today they cut off our laundry again so we are unable to be hygienic and wash our clothing or our bedding after we have been sweating in our beds, end quote. This is not the first instance of a water outage at Ayman. In. in June, when high temperatures were regularly above 110 degrees in Florence, prisoners also reported their evaporative cooling systems were not working. At the time, the department said the outages were due to, quote, scheduled work on plumbing. Water supply problems have plagued the department for years. In October 2019, after inmates in the Douglas prison complained of brown, foul smelling water, the Arizona Department of Corrections confirmed water at the prison had a, quote, noticeable petroleum odor and taste, end quote. Water outages have become so common across the entire Arizona prison system that the department purchased a tanker truck to haul water for $18,000 in December of 2020. Political prisoner Eric King had his first evidentiary hearing on October 14th in Colorado Federal Court for a charge while in prison for allegedly assaulting a Bureau of Prisons officer in 2018. According to King, he was the one who was assaulted that day by a prison guard. The hearing seeks to determine the validity of disputed evidence presented by both the U.S. government and CLDC regarding the voluntariness of Eric's statements to government interrogators. Eric spoke to the BOP officers following hours of physical and mental abuse, being placed in a cell full of feces that guards refused to clean and questionable mirandizing that, as his attorneys are alleging, violated Eric's constitutional rights. BOP officers also deleted video evidence of the abuse and may have misrepresented facts about the incident to the FBI. King was originally set to be released in 2023, but now faces additional charges accusing him of assaulting a federal officer, which could tack on 20 years to his initial 10-year sentence. King has been held in solitary confinement for about three years without access to snail mail or phone calls outside of communications with his immediate family and attorneys. And, according to a lawsuit filed by the his behalf, the BOP has colluded with white supremacists by staging assaults and bunking him with members of white supremacist gangs. Presiding, mm-hmm. Presiding mm-hmm. Judge mm-hmm. William J. Martinez made a motion prior to the hearing that it would be closed to the public because the court, quote, became aware of information which causes it to be concerned of a potential disruption of the hearing, end quote. The judge admitted on record that U.S. Marshals and others looked at social media accounts and saw discussions that people were going to be at the hearing. He didn't share specific details or say if there was a talk of a, quote, disruption on social media. Therefore, members of the media, the community, and one of his family members were not allowed to enter the courtroom. Only his partner was allowed to go in. You can follow Eric's case at supportericking.org.
0: This week, we hear from a friend and supporter of Jessica Resnicek, who's incarcerated in federal prison after she admitted to sabotaging the widely opposed Dakota Access Pipeline, or DAPL, in 2017. In this episode, Monty tells Jessica's story from her childhood influences to her experiences in the No Dapple movement to how her sentencing was meant to deter future climate activists. Here's Monty.
2: My name is Monty and I am a member of the Jessica Resincheck support team. I'm a friend of Jessica's and have been supporting her through her legal process. Over the last like two years, Jessica Rezinchek was a part of the No Dapple movement. She was born in Iowa and was living in Iowa. And when the Standing Rock youth ran to Washington, D.C. to raise awareness about the Dakota Access Pipeline and how it was being built without tribal consent across the treaty lands of the Standing Rock tribe, Jessica actually went with them on that run. Really early on in the No Dapple movement. And I think it was formative for her, and she came back to Iowa shortly thereafter and started a camp in Iowa where she waged a nonviolent direct action campaign against the Dakota Access Pipeline there on the Mississippi River crossing and started a camp called the Mississippi Stand Camp. During that time, she went to the public hearings, she led marches, a lot of people came and stood with her at that camp. Um, And I think she kind of saw as the public process failed, as like she did all of the things that you're you're kind of taught to do as a child. She did the marches. She went to the hearing. she, She got her like three minutes in front of the judges and the Public Utility Commission. And all that happened was the pipeline kept being built. Even though now the federal courts have said it was it was built illegally, it was still being built across the rivers that she grew up swimming in. And so eventually, she and a friend of hers went down the length of the pipeline in Iowa with uh, oxyacetylene torches, and which is kind of what they used to weld the pipes together. And they unwelded sections of the pipeline, as well as dismantled a bunch of the construction equipment. You know, they had set fire to it. And in 2017, they actually took responsibility for those actions and uh, did a press release where they took responsibility. And a year later, the FBI raided their house, and then they were charged with 10 charges, some of which had mandatory minimums of up to 10 years in prison. And just this year, Jessica pled guilty to one charge of conspiracy um, to commit damage against an energy facility and this year she was sentenced to eight years in prison 3.2 million dollars of restitution paid to the pipeline company and three years of probation along with the domestic terrorism enhancement the domestic terrorism enhancement doubled her prison sentence from three years to eight years i'm not sure when the charge was first used but it's become this charge that's used a lot against environmentalists it's a attempt of the state to criminalize environmental protests by saying that you're a terrorist um, like when you get labeled a domestic terrorist it in like inherently tax on about fifteen years to your to like what the judge can sentence you to in terms of prison and A lot of the time, you'll also be sent to a facility where you are basically on solitary confinement for the whole time that you're there. So there's very material and and horrible implications to to being labeled a domestic terrorist. And what we've seen again and again, especially recently, is this language of terrorism is being used to justify state surveillance of activists. Being used against um, pipeline protesters in Minnesota, in West Virginia, in Canada, and I think in the con like in the context of the IPCC climate report that just came out, where they were saying there the, there's this code red for humanity if we don't drastically reduce our carbon emissions. Uh, they also the main scientists from that report also put out this letter in the last couple of years denouncing the global trends. That was happening across the world of governments labeling environmentalists and indigenous people terrorists as a way to basically eliminate their civil civil liberties and human rights. And so I, I think that that's a part of the context of Jessica's case, this apparatus that is criminalizing climate protest while the world is burning due to this climate crisis we're in. The state's response to... Ecological defense in the, in the face of this climate crisis and, and to, to land defense and land offenders and indigenous water protectors um, has been to increasingly criminalize them. After the No Dapple movement, which is one of the largest social movements in our history, after the No Dapple movement, states across the country passed these what they're called critical infrastructure bills at the behest of oil corporations. Um That basically took existing crimes, you know, like like if you walk onto a site that's owned by a pipeline company, you can be charged with trespass. Um, and so and but it's usually a misdemeanor. It's you can get charged with trespass, and it's like max thirty days in jail or something. And so what these critical infrastructure laws did is they took these existing laws and they said, if you're trespassing on pipeline property specifically, on critical infrastructure, even if it's private property of like a private corporation, it's suddenly a felony and you can suddenly go to prison for 10 years. And so that's what we've seen with Jess's case as well, is there was a law to prosecute Jess for her actions, like the the charge that she bled guilty to um, had a sentencing guideline of like three or four years, um, or it's like zero to... 20 is like the range, but like her sentencing guidelines were, were three to four years. But then they tacked on this this terrorism enhancement that cranked it up to eight to nine years, you know, in prison. And so I think I think that's that's what what's going on. And what the judge said at her sentencing was I'm sentencing you to this amount of time because I need to discourage other people from taking similar action. And so these laws that are being passed across the country, these critical infrastructure laws that are being passed across the United States and across the world, there's laws being passed in India, in the Philippines, in Canada, that equate environmental activists and land defenders and indigenous people with terrorists. And that's the point of these laws is to dissuade people from taking similar action. I think something that happened with Standing Rock is that it awoke in a lot of the United States a recognition of Indigenous people and presence of Indigenous people that I don't think had happened for a very long time. And now there is a growing movement of people standing in solidarity with Indigenous people who are protecting their land and water. I think the mainstream environmental movement received a check by Standing Rock and and learned a lot from Standing Rock and learned to acknowledge the leadership of Indigenous people. I think something that the mainstream environmental movement has lacked for a very long time is that it's people trying to protect an earth that they have no relationship with. And so Standing Rock was a really special movement. Because it was Indigenous people protecting lands that they had a very long standing relationship with, that they had stories tied to, where they harvested their food. It was their home. And I think that Jessica and her actions, she'd kind of tried to embody that respect for the land and respect for Indigenous people and the responsibility that we all have to the land. I think in the context, Of the world we're living in, we all kind of have to ask ourselves how are we going to act in the face of climate catastrophe when governments are not actually protecting the earth or the water and not actually reducing our our climate impact and not actually reducing our, our emissions? And for Jess, she felt that she had a responsibility to the waters that she grew up swimming in and to the indigenous people who started the No Dapple movement. And that responsibility caused her to act even though she knew her, her liberty was at stake. Jessica's actions were extremely personal for her. And that was because she had a very close relationship with the land and the water that she was trying to protect. Um, Jess grew up in Iowa and grew up swimming in the raccoon river. In the moments of her childhood where she needed, you know, to take a breath, the Raccoon River was there for her and gave her a sense of peace and a sense of wholeness. And last year, the Raccoon River was put on the top 10 lists of our nation's most endangered rivers. This past year, the city of Des Moines, which is the capital of Iowa, Their water department said their water system was on the verge of collapse due to industrial pollution, and they actually had to switch their intake from the Des Moines River to the Raccoon River, but the Raccoon River was also really polluted and uh, extremely low due to drought. That was the context for Jess's sentencing. The judge was saying, you're a domestic terrorist for trying to protect the water, even though you didn't hurt anyone and no one was even in danger of being hurt by your actions, but there was no point for you to take this action and and I'm going to I'm going to try and make sure that no one else takes these actions and that was in the context of the Des Moines water system being on the verge of collapse and so I think that Jessica spoke to this in some of her interviews but she can't you can't swim in the raccoon river anymore in her lifetime she saw a river go from being like a mother figure to her go from being a place where she could take a breath and a place that would hold her and that she loved to being a toxic place that you couldn't swim in and what what she talks about is and 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 the reason she was acting for future generations as well as the present generation is she said like in a lot of ways her life was was really saved by the raccoon river and for all the children now who need to take a breath, they can't go to that river and and do that. They can't go to that river and swim anymore. And so by fighting for the water in Iowa, Jess was really fighting for the kids like her who were growing up in that state and really fighting for better worlds and fighting to clean up the water and the land there. Um, and, And that's, I think, a hope of Jess's as well as a hope of mine is that we can protect the earth, you know, from these destructive projects and, and these pipelines, but also to actually heal the earth so that we can all heal and so that we can all take that breath. Yeah, it's a very personal fight for her. And and when you see your home be des- destroyed in your lifetime, when you see the waters of Iowa get polluted in your lifetime, or when Jess saw the saw the rivers of Iowa get polluted in her lifetime. I think she felt that responsibility to act because she saw the world that these companies were building and that this government's been building isn't a world that we can survive. Um, and it's not a world that she would have been able to survive as a child. And I think that's why she felt that responsibility. Something unique about Jess's case is that by taking responsibility for her actions, she's not only started a conversation around the responsibility that individuals have to act, as well as the tactics that she used. But she's encouraged that conversation to grow. Our campaign, the campaign to free Jess and to repeal this terrorism enhancement has been supported by some pretty large anti-war groups, pretty large environmental groups like Rainforest Action Network. And I think that's because her case takes tactics that maybe these groups wouldn't engage in and and wouldn't even normally talk about and brings it to a broader audience, as well as I think these groups are realizing that the language of terrorism is coming to their doors and what happens to Jessica is, if not already happening to them, will happen to them very, very shortly. As I said, most environmental movements across the country that are trying to protect land are currently being surveilled and are currently feeling the language of terrorism be brought against them by the U.S. government. The movement against Line 3 in Anishinaabe Territory in Minnesota, the movement against the Mountain Valley Pipeline in West Virginia, they're all currently like being surveilled by federal agencies um, under the guise of, of anti-terrorism. Yeah, I think that's kind of a broad thing about how just bringing this conversation to the public shed light on the facts that the conversation really should be public. If we're going to stand up against this system that's just growing, like the Department of Homeland Security, a lot of people don't realize that these anti-terrorism systems and agencies have only been around since about 2001. 2001, Is when the Department of Homeland Security was created. 2002 or 2003 is when ICE was created. And since then, since their creation, there hasn't really been anyone in power, at least there hasn't been a president who's checked the power of those agencies. They've basically been rogue agencies since they began. And so it's important that Jessica's case is bringing up this conversation because if we don't check those agencies, They're just going to keep growing and growing and growing, and people are going to keep getting thrown in prison for really long periods of time for taking nonviolent action to protect the public. At the end of the day, no one was hurt by Jessica's actions, and even if you don't support them, like her tactics, you can agree that she's not a terrorist. I've been asking myself what it means that it was Biden's Department of Justice that sought the terrorism enhancement against Jess. And I think it shows where the current priorities of the Biden administration lay. It's troubling that the Biden administration will, on one hand, say they're going to act on climate change and say that that's one of their priorities. But on the other hand, they're actually criminalizing individuals who take action on climate change. It's been under Joe Biden that line three, which is a new million barrel a day pipeline from the Canadian tar sands, has been built, equivalent to 50 new power plants. And and so I think it's it's troubling that this administration, that this administration who is a Democrat um, who's more progressive than the last one, at least that's what they say, is actually expanding the criminalization of environmental protesters. And so, in the context of acting on climate change, I think that something we need to realize is that these systems that are getting built, like the Dakota Access Pipeline, the Line 3 pipeline, these are new systems that are drastically expanding fossil fuel infrastructure. If over 50% of fossil fuel burning infrastructure has been built after 2004, that tells us that these problems are getting worse and that these problems are getting worse a lot faster. And so I think for Joe Biden and Joe Biden's administration, it's not only that they're not acting as fast as they should, they're actually moving in the wrong direction right now. They're letting bigger projects get built while also criminalizing the individuals who are standing up and risking their liberty to protect the earth and water that the government's failing to protect. So if you go to supportjessicaresincheck.com, that's our website, and there you can find the petition we're asking people to sign. If you click on the petition page, people can sign up to tell Congress to repeal this use of domestic terrorism against Jessica. And there's also on the petition page, a link where organizations can sign up to support. So that's one way we're, we're getting people to support Jessica. We're also going to be making t-shirts that are really beautiful and that everyone should buy. And um, one of the asks that we are putting out there for Jessica's campaign is that people make art to support the messages of her campaign. I think art is really powerful. Art gives people joy and can capture messages a lot better than words can. So if you're an artist, please email us at free at Gmail or contact us through our Facebook page or go to our website, love art. And then just on a personal note, we've been individually, we've been writing Jessica a lot and talking to her and making sure she has money on her books and she has books that she wants. And, and yeah, and we'll be, doing just kind of doing everything that we can to support our friend who's locked up in a room jessica's case is really serious but at the end of the day the reason i'm involved in this campaign is because i'm her friend and i really want people to understand what jessica's like as also a part of this campaign like jessica is one of the most joyful people i know and one of the most sincere people i know um she loves camping one of my favorite memories of hanging out with Jessica is like we went camping by this river and we're like roasting hot dogs over a fire. I don't know. I think. Uh, I think one thing that Jessica taught me was it, or she, she just is one of those people who has that spirit of kind of like rebellious dignity, you know, like she's seen the rivers in Iowa get poisoned, the rivers that she loves. And so she carries that grief in her. You know, like where you look in her eyes, and it's just like very clear that she's seen that she holds grief and has seen some real. Shit. But then you also look in her eyes, and they're full of joy and kind of laughter. And I think that that kind of speaks to that that kind of dignity of rebellion. Is she's she's a person who loves the world, and loves the people of the world, and because of that, she acted to protect the world and protect the water. She likes to remind people that her actions really shouldn't be seen as radical. You know, like her actions didn't take that long. Like when, in terms of unwelding a pipe, it, was, it only took a couple minutes to do that. She took these actions out of this love, out of this deep love for the place that she was from, for the trees and for the water and for the fish and for the people that live there and for all the kids who, you know, ride their bikes down to the river and want to swim there. And so I really appreciate that. I really appreciate those actions of love because I also love this world and love the people in it. And I hope that, you know, I hope that we can all come together and get Jess free, make sure that (laughs) that the U S government hears that Jessica Reznicek is not a terrorist for protecting the water out of love, but also so that we can hold each other up to also act from places of love and courage and sincerity when it comes to protecting what's important.
0: This has been KiteLine. Thank you to everyone who contributed to the show. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you wanna financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at KiteLineRadio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.